Welcome to the program. I'm Jeff Schechter. A not terribly successful American president was right about one thing when he said that the business of America is business. It's hard to argue with that today. In fact, today it would be safer to say that the business of the world is business. Whether through globalization or just through the individual entrepreneurship of citizens in the developing world, business is the one force that seems to counter unrest, instability, joblessness, and even extremism. Wisdom and experience tell us we will not stop extremism in the Middle East or other violent regions with just guns, drones, and military force. But it just may be that fostering entrepreneurship and job creation may be one answer. Leading this school of thought has been my guest, Stephen Coltai. He created and ran the Global Entrepreneurship Program for Secretary of State Clinton. He left the State Department to continue this work of global entrepreneurship building through his own company, and he's currently a guest scholar at the Brookings Institution. It is my pleasure to welcome Stephen Coltai here to talk about his book, Peace Through Entrepreneurship, Investing in a Startup Culture for Security and Development. Stephen Coltai, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. It's great to have you here. First of all, talk about your own experience and how this notion of the value of entrepreneurship as a force for good in the world evolved in your own thinking, in your own way of looking at the world. Well, you know, I uh, uh, come at this actually from a very personal um, place. I am uh, uh, the son of survivors of the Holocaust. I was born in Budapest. My family were refugees in the Hungarian Revolution coming to the U.S. in 1956 when I was two years old. And um, so I have a, a very personal firsthand connection to what happens when things go badly wrong. And... Um, as, as I as I grew up and you know went to college and I became a history major and you know then went to graduate school in international affairs, um, all at Tufts in Boston, I um, uh, began to feel more and more strongly that um, the root cause of the violent political upheavals that you know um, really destroy lives, including the lives of many in my own family, were. Uh, what came from joblessness, that what people really were uh, angry enough to, to fight about, to kill others and kill themselves over, was the hopelessness and despair that comes from joblessness. It was actually not um, many of the other things that we attribute to the causes of war. Um, uh, so um, I have had an interest in, in addressing that issue in a foreign policy context for a long time. And as an American, we are, we, we, we grow up with our DNA is all about, um, entrepreneurship and, you know, business creation. It's what built America. It's what continues to build America. And it was always surprising to me that, um, uh, this sort of well-known fact in the U.S. was apparently not used at all in our foreign policy. Uh, we didn't recognize that job creation through entrepreneurship was actually one of the keys to solving the problems that were increasingly confronting us, and that was particularly true when the problems were from non-state actors. So in the post-Cold War era, when the biggest threats to the U.S. were from terrorism and extremism, which were not by states, um, and you couldn't therefore fight them with billion-dollar battleships, um, how do you uh, protect yourself um, in, in that context? And so I, 
I have always believed that um, that we should be doing this. And President Obama, uh, when he was was first uh, elected, gave a very important speech. Uh, talked about entrepreneurship, and and that's what enticed me to come to Washington and start doing this work. When we think about the the insidious impacts of joblessness, both in this country and throughout the world, and the degree to which it even breeds the kind of extremism you're talking about, it seems to me that there's two ways to think about it. There's the economic basis of it and, and the poverty that it creates, but it also seems to go beyond that in terms of the value of work itself. Talk about that distinction. Well, I, I think that's a really interesting and good point. Uh, you know, in, in, in the book that I've just written, Peace Through Entrepreneurship, there's a chapter called A Million Reasons Why Entrepreneurship is Good for You. And so people don't get scared. I don't actually have a million, but I have a baker's <laughs> dozen of 13. And the fact is that, you know, job creation is by far the most important, in, in my mind, benefit. But there are so many other um, uh, important um, benefits. For example, um, and this is particularly true in, you know, an innovation-intensive uh, economy like ours, um, entrepreneurs are usually the bridge from which innovation gets to commercialization. Otherwise, innovation just remains uh, an academic exercise. Um, entrepreneurs, uh, entrepreneurship is, is, is very often uh, the only path that is available to people not born to privilege in a particular society. And by the way, that can be uh, a developed or developing country. It's, it's the same, same principle. Um, and I, I have also found that entrepreneurs are this amazing breed of person, and they're actually the same person everywhere in the world, no matter where they are. Entrepreneurs are this, what I call, bridge class in society. It's the same person. And usually, whether they're Sunni or Shia or Protestant or Catholic or Arab is, or Israeli or, um, you know, North Nigerian or South Nigerian, when they are entrepreneurs, all they're really interested in talking about is their startup. And they have a lot to talk about. And so this creates a bridge class in society. Those are some of the other reasons why I think entrepreneurship promotion is such an important policy. One of the things you talk about, though, with respect to entrepreneurship is that there really are two kinds. There, there are those that are innovators and those that are commercializers, and that the vast majority of them really are commercializers, but that's entrepreneurship too, not necessarily in the kind of glamorous rock star way we think about it here in the States today. Yeah, Jeff, that is a super important point. Um, uh, I, you know, there have been, there's been a lot of research done on this, and it's, 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 as with every social science, it's hard to come up with hard numbers. But some estimates are that um, uh, only 20% of entrepreneurs are real innovators. 80% of the commercializers of someone else's innovation. Um, I certainly would call myself one of that 80%. Uh, my own entrepreneurial ventures have, have been, uh, well, first of all, they've been mostly unsuccessful except for one, <laughs> which is also something entrepreneurs don't talk about enough. But um, uh, even, even the one that was extremely successful, uh, I co-founded a, what is now a very large television satellite company in Europe. Um, I was not a satellite engineer. I knew very little about the technology, but my partner was a world-class engineer, and I was 
uh, much, much better than he was at commercializing it, at raising the money, at selling our transponders, at marketing our product. So what I tell people who are interested in entrepreneurship is first, it's just about the hardest thing you can do. So be sure you really want to do this. And second, don't think that you have to be the person who has the innovation. You may be a team member or a partner for such a person. And in fact, 80% of successful entrepreneurs are not the innovator. So be sure and be open to that possibility. What damage has been done? And damage may be too strong a word, but what has been the impact as you see it? of the degree to which entrepreneurs today, particularly innovators and particularly in Silicon Valley, have become rock stars and has it given the perception to the world that in order to be an entrepreneur today, that you have to be visionary, that you have to be an innovator, that you have to to, to sort of check off all the boxes that we see checked off by entrepreneurs in Silicon Valley today? Well, I think, you know, as with any celebrity, um, you know, you tend to focus on the 0.01% at the top of the pyramid, and then you uh, can be disappointed when, you know, you don't get there. I mean, I, I think of athletics. Um, you know, how many of us are going to be, you know, Olympic athletes or world-class athletes? Does that mean that, you know, we shouldn't do sports? Um, you know, how many of us are going to be concert pianists? Um, does that mean that we can't still enjoy uh, piano and music? Um, and I feel the same way about, about this. So, so I totally agree with you that there is a, a tendency to have a, a all-or-nothing view of this. If I don't end up being a billionaire by the time I'm 30, then I'm a failure, and that's, of course, absurd. The second thing, though, that I would say, and that's particularly true in my work in, uh, in developing countries, is that... Um, the, the celebrity status of entrepreneurs in America, which is unique to America, by the way, in most places it's, uh, entrepreneurs are not celebrities, um, has uh, focused uh, attention on tech entrepreneurs, and that's obviously particularly true in Silicon Valley. The fact of the matter is that um, no-tech and low-tech entrepreneurs, as I call them, uh, in many cases not only create more jobs, not only have a higher likelihood of success, but actually substantially outnumber tech entrepreneurs. They just don't get as much coverage. So one of the things I tell people when I go around the world uh, and, and every place I've ever been, I've worked in about three dozen developing countries, every place I've ever been without exception is planning to create their own Silicon Valley. So I, I, I work hard at trying to disabuse them of that, tell them it's hard. it was hard enough to do in Silicon Valley. It's particularly hard to do in other parts of the U.S. And, you know, you're, if, that, if that's your metric of success, you're probably going to fail. Why don't you think of other things? Why don't you recognize that non-tech entrepreneurs, Starbucks, have created more jobs? There are more people who work for Starbucks in Santa Clara County than there are who work for Google worldwide. And Starbucks did not invent coffee. So I define an entrepreneur as someone who innovates a product or process and has the ability to make it happen. And you can think of many examples where no tech like coffee or low tech like Uber, Uber didn't invent the technology and it certainly didn't invent the taxi business, but it changed the process, created a successful entrepreneurial venture. 
As you look around the world where this has been successful, and when you look at the degree to which entrepreneurship and job creation has really been an underpinning of some political stability, how far does it have to go to reach some kind of a tipping point? How much entrepreneurship does there need to be in order to begin to make a difference? Well, that, of course, is a question that depends entirely on the geography you're in and the situation you're in. You know, um, uh, in the United States, when we had over an 8% uh, unemployment rate, that was a, a, a political, uh, you know, disaster and was all that anyone could talk about. Um, in Germany, in the interwar years in 1934, the jobless rate was 27%. In the Arab world today, the average jobless rate is 35%, and in most Arab countries, that doesn't, uh, that's only men because they don't count women. So the, the level of, um, uh, of pressure on, on a society to create these jobs um, varies, but we know uh, that bad things happen when, when that number um, is really high. Conversely, the lower the number, and there are many countries that have very low rates of unemployment, uh, uh, you, you, you can also still have a stress that comes from not sufficient innovation. Japan is a good example, uh, an aging economy, um, wealthy country, um, but slipping because um, their level of innovation is actually uh, relatively low. So, it is, so entrepreneurship... Um, promotion and maintenance of an entrepreneurial ecosystem that's fertile, I believe, is, is pretty much universally important in both developed and developing countries. What are the seeds to that entrepreneurship in, in the DNA, perhaps, of a particular country? What are the things that, that are most often valuable in creating that atmosphere? Is it education? Is it culture? What are the things that underlie successful entrepreneurship efforts? Well, you know, one of the myths um, about successful uh, entrepreneurial ecosystems is that um, they're successful because of their culture. You hear this a lot with respect to Israel, for instance, which uh, is by many measures the most successful uh, entrepreneurial ecosystem in the world today, more so than ours. Um, the fact of the matter is that my experience is that entrepreneurs exist everywhere on earth. Um, they are not equally publicized. They're not equally well-known. And certainly the kind of entrepreneurship in which they engage is very different in different places based on local circumstances. But the entrepreneurial instinct is a core human instinct, and it exists everywhere in the world. What I have found is that there are things that you can do, which is why this notion of entrepreneurship ecosystem building is so important. There are things that you can do that actually influence it. So this is a influenceable issue. You can do things that make it better and you can do things that make it worse. And clearly good governance is at the top of the list of things that, um, 
we make it better and are required to be successful. Uh, in my book, I have a comparison of Singapore and Jamaica in 1965. They were both identical-sized countries. They were both just recently uh, independent colonies of Britain. They had exactly the same per capita income. They, they had island countries that were almost exactly the same size. And look at the difference between Singapore and Jamaica today. Mm-hmm. So... Um, the fact is that governance matters a lot, um, and most of the successful ecosystems have government leadership at the beginning, which, is, which has actually been one of the toughest things to explain in doing the work I do, because the natural instinct is to say, this is a private sector thing, keep the government away. In fact, when you actually study it, there are no examples of successful ecosystems where the government has been kept away. And that they is a, are all where the government has been involved. And that's a problem right here at home, the degree to which entrepreneurship and business creation has, like almost everything else, been politicized in the wrong way relative to the point that you just made. You bet. I, I, I couldn't agree more. And, and in looking at that, are, do similar problems exist in other parts of the world? Oh, I think so. I mean, um, you know, they they obviously are are different, um, you know, based on local circumstances. But the, I, I like to say that in in the, in the work I do, um, I, it's sort of like being a doctor. Every human being on Earth has exactly the same anatomy, physiology, biochemistry. Every single human on Earth today, and. The range of remedies for maladies is a fairly well-known medicine chest full of remedies. Having said that, no two people are likely to be treated exactly the same way, even for exactly the same disease, because there are particulars in each case. And the same is true with this entrepreneurship development. The basic tools are the same. The key elements are the same. But the public policy, the government programs and the public programs from, uh, from many other players, I have the six plus six model in my book that includes six categories of players of which government is only one, those particulars have to be customized to each economy. Talk a little bit about the economic underpinning that has to be there, because in order to have any kind of successful entrepreneurial effort, there have to be customers that can afford whatever it is that you're selling. Yes, that is true. But again, going back to my experience in in working in developing countries, um, uh, there's no place I've ever been where there aren't customers. The, the price point for a particular product or service is going to vary. Um, the, the chain of necessities is going to, to vary. But, you know, let's take, for example, um, uh, mobility in a big city. Um, the poorest countries in the world are actually the ones that have some of the most congested cities. Um, there was a company that I, I worked with in Indonesia um, that had what I would call a low-tech business, which was essentially Uber for motorcycles. Um, and they were looking to raise about $250,000 when we took a delegation of Americans there on a State Department trip about six years ago. Uh, that company called Gojek um, just uh, received an investment from a major Chinese company for $550 million, valuing the company $1.2 billion. They, are, they do motorcycle courier services in traffic-clogged Jakarta. 
um, the per capita income in Indonesia uh, is around $1,000. It's a very poor country and a very crowded place, but people can build a successful business providing a service that people need. And I have found that to be true everywhere in the world. What has been or what is the role of globalization, of export markets, and also the free flow of money around the world? What are the role of those two things in helping to create and foster local entrepreneurship? Well, there, there are, you'd be hard-pressed to find a single business in today's world that is entirely 100% contained within a nation's borders, including in the United States. Um, so... Uh, every business is affected by globalization, even things that you might think are totally local, like, for example, real estate. You know, the property is here. Uh, The fact is, if you look at, you know, real estate transactions, a very substantial number, um, especially in large cities, uh, are engaged in by by international buyers. So um, every business is international. The, the example I just gave of the motorcycle courier service in, uh, in Indonesia, you know, the investor there was Chinese. Um, I think we, we, one of the, the frustrations I have in, in making the case for how important developing entrepreneurship around the world is for American policy is that it isn't just about security. It's also about economic self-interest. The biggest uh, financial returns are going to come, as they have here, from investing in startups. And guess what? Not all of the best and most successful startups are based in uh, Northern California. Uh, They're all over the world, and increasingly, they will be even more all over the world. So if we're not looking at this globally, even just from an investment standpoint, um, we're going to miss out on um, a huge uh, wave of, 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 of capital uh, and profit that we could enjoy. What is the nexus between the kind of entrepreneurship that you're talking about and the kind of micro-investing, the kind of stuff that, that Mohammed Yunus pioneered in parts of the developing world? You know, this is, again, a very important question. Uh, I make a distinction between microfinance and small business and scalable entrepreneurship. Both are critical. Both are need to be supported. But microfinance does not have the same benefits. Um, when, you, when, you, when there is a, 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 a woman in a village who buys two sewing machines so that she now is able to um, take in sewing and, and start a mini tailor shop, she will employ another person. Or she may, may employ five other people. Or if she's really successful, she may employ 15 other people. But the fact is that when you look at the, the level of job creation that is required in these countries, and frankly, the level of economic value that can be created in a scalable entrepreneurial venture versus a new small business, they're really apples and oranges. And so while I think that microfinance um, and, and, and the whole uh, phenomenon that, as, as you said, Eunice quite rightly, um, you know, uh, brought to the fore, while that is, is important, it is not the whole answer. 
What needs to be done? What can the U.S. do? And I know this is an area that you write about and that you work on. What can the U.S. do in terms of fostering this sense of entrepreneurship around the world? Well, the most important thing in my mind is that the U.S. has to do more than what it's now doing, and it has to do it better. What the U.S. is now doing, and, and, and I was very much part of this, is talking about the importance of this, uh, advocating for the importance of this, but actually providing very few programs, very little money to do it. And... Um, I, you know, take the, the adage from the startup world, it's 5% inspiration, 95% perspiration. To me, the, the tough thing about all of this is not that we need to talk about it more. We're talking about it a lot. Um, we are doing precious little. And one of the things I talk about in my book, and I have some statistics um, around this, the U.S. is, depending on which measures you use, somewhere between 7th, 8th, or ninth largest funder of entrepreneurship programs around the world. It is not a central element of either our security policy or our development policy. Um, in Iraq, Afghanistan, and Pakistan, we have spent over $4 trillion dollars and more than 6,000 U.S. lives displacing millions of people since our involvement there after 9-11. And by any measure, uh, unemployment rates, particularly youth unemployment rates in those three countries, are uh, much higher today than they were when we got there. So I would argue that if we had spent a tiny fraction of that $4 trillion on job creation programs, um, we would actually uh, be in a better place um, than, than we are now. So we have to spend more money, and I talk about in the book, we have to spend it smarter. The, the way the U.S. government does procurement and contracting today is what I call turning a screw with a rubber screwdriver. It's very, very inefficient, and the best uh, uh, providers of services are rarely the ones who win the contracts, and we need to change that. To what extent has technology been an important, and, and to what degree will it continue to be an important part of making this all work in terms of the degree to which people are interconnected today? Well, it's essential. I mean, it's, it's uh, like, I mean, I believe, that, you know, that the Internet, that there's almost nothing in life today that has not been uh, touched by and affected by um, the Internet. Um, and that is certainly true in this space as well. Uh, it's true in terms of the, the adaptation of fairly basic technologies um, uh, like e-commerce technologies or uh, mobile technologies um, in creating uh, just an, an, uh, an uncountable number of new businesses all over the world um, to the ability of uh, entrepreneurs and investors to connect with each other. Um, so it, it has been um, absolutely essential both in the substance of the businesses that are built and in creating the ecosystem for them to thrive. And it, finally, in your personal experience, how receptive is our government to these ideas <laughs> well this is a uh, uh, this is what, what we you know call the $64,000 mm -hmm. question the government 
first of all, the government is not the government. It's a lot of different organizations. So in my book, in, in the entrepreneurship space, there are 26 different federal agencies, probably 60 departments within all of those agency departments and offices that in one way or another are involved in this space. Um, so right there, you're going to get a, a multiplicity of answers. Um, the, 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 the level of attention to this issue in Congress is woefully and surprisingly lacking. Um, and the executive branch is the implementing entity, uh, the implementing branch of Congress. Uh, the policy, and much more importantly, the money, is controlled by Congress. And um, I think that we have a huge amount of work to do uh, to get um, uh, our representatives to understand how important this is and to uh, order a shift in spending to reflect that policy change. Stephen Kultai, his book is Peace Through Entrepreneurship, Investing in a Startup Culture for Security and Development. Stephen, I thank you so much for spending time with us. Thank you.